0: It's August, 1977. Many of you weren't even born, okay? I'm a youth pastor, bringing back 40 high schoolers from a mission retreat and ministry opportunity on the East Coast here, or where I was. I can't remember where I am right now, okay? I was on the East Coast. We come back. We uh, enter church services, get back late Saturday night, we enter the church service. I was working in a Baptist church at that time. If you've ever been in a Baptist church, I don't know about this church, but a Baptist church, it's not a day of rest. It starts early in the morning and it goes late at night, okay? Sound like some of you might know what that's all about. So I finally get home about nine o'clock that night, Sunday night, and um, the phone rings. I answer the phone and it's my senior pastor's wife and she's crying hysterically on the phone. So I finally get her to calm down a little bit and she keeps saying, he's gone, he's gone. And so I'm not sure what that meant. So I hopped in my car, I drive over to the house, I walk into the house. There's three kids on the couch all holding each other, sobbing, uh, just broken hearted. She's all in tears. And I finally get them all calmed down. Two of those kids have been with me on this mission trip to the East Coast. And I begin to hear a story that I begin to think to myself, I think I know more about this than I realized. So finally, after about 11 o'clock, with a promise to come back in the morning, I get in my car, and I drive to a neighboring town in northwestern Ohio. I pull up in front of an apartment building, and it's all dark, of course, everybody's in bed, hopefully by that time of night. And there's this big plate glass window right down behind some shrubs, and I think to myself, you know, I'm gonna see if they're still living there. So I get out of my car and I'm thinking, I'm going to get arrested. I mean, this is going to be front page news. I sneak around behind the bushes and I finally get up to that plate glass one and I put my face on that one to look inside and there's not a stitch of furniture in that room. I had been going to that apartment for two years every other Thursday, putting on Bible studies for the boys in that apartment complex. I knew nothing about them moving or leaving. So I think to myself, well, I'll come back in the morning, real early, and maybe I'll catch one of those boys at the school bus stop or something like that. So sure enough, come up early in the morning, and I get there, and lo and behold, I see one of those kids. I said, hey, what happened to such and such? Oh, oh they moved. I said, well, what do you mean they moved? Well, no, they, they backed a big U-Haul truck up here and loaded up the furniture and moved. I said, well, where'd they go? Well, they wouldn't tell us. They said they're just going to move. I thought to myself, U-Haul truck. I know where a U-Haul truck store is. I get back in my car, I drive clear across town and into another village, and sure enough, I find the U-Haul truck store. I walk in the door, and there's this guy sitting behind the desk and behind a counter, and I walk up to the counter, and I said, um, you know, I think my pastor has reserved a U-Haul truck, and I'd like to just make sure all the details in order. He throws the entire sheaf of invoices at me. He says, look for them yourself. And that, that was before attorneys got a hold of this. But anyway... Uh, <clears throat> So I started thumbing through those invoices, and sure enough, I found an invoice with my pastor's name on it going to Dallas, Texas. So I write down the address of the U-Haul truck store, he's supposed to turn the truck back in. I drive home, I pack a suitcase, I drive 90 miles to the closest airport, I buy a ticket, I fly to Dallas, Texas, I get a room on the 14th floor of the Hilton Hotel with a window that overlooks the U-Haul truck store. Okay? Okay. Don't ever run from me. Okay? But anyway, okay. Okay. I sit there for six straight days with my binoculars, okay? Waiting for this guy to pull that U-Haul truck into that truck store. He doesn't show up. So I get a phone call from the church back in Ohio saying, you gotta come home, the place is in a mess. It's a disaster. We just can't have you being gone on Sunday. I said, okay. So I decide, though, to go down and talk to the guy at the U-Haul truck store. Now, what are you going to say to a guy? I, 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 something like this, you know? So I take the elevator down, cross the street, walk in this U-Haul truck store, same setup as it was in Ohio, counter across the front, desk. He's sitting behind the desk. He Just like that guy, and it must be the training they received. He didn't even look up when I walked in the door. He said, can I help you? I said, yeah. I said, um, I think my senior pastor has ran off with another woman in the church. He's borrowed a U-Haul truck, and he's bringing it back to this truck store. He puts his hands down the desk like this, and he looks up real slowly, and he says, I'm Southern Baptist. Let's get him. <laughs> I had a friend, okay? <clears throat> so I hand him the picture of my senior pastor. And with my phone number in the back, I said, call me when he shows up, okay? And uh, so I fly home. I'm at the church on Monday morning, 10 o'clock, I get a phone call from this guy. He's whispering. So uh, he says, he's in the office. here. So I start whispering back, oh, how do you know it's him? He said. <laughs> he said, well, he's got the same shirt on, the picture he's got on in my office. I know it's him. I said, Okay, I said, uh, well, listen, God will forgive you. I promise God will forgive you. Lie if you have to. Tell him you're going to send him money. Okay, he's desperate for money. I know. Tell him you're going to send him money. He's got a rebate coming or something. Just give me an address, just an address, okay? Okay, hangs up the phone. Ten minutes later, he calls me back. He says, I got an address. I, I write it down. I drive 90 miles back to the airport. I buy another plane ticket. I take a friend with me. We we fly to Dallas-Fort Worth, we get a rental car, we drive to this address in this house, we walk up the front steps, knock on the door, and this single mom in whose apartment I've been having Bible studies with all the boys in the neighborhood for the last two years answers the door and screams, okay? My senior pastor walks out of the shadows of the back of the house, we take him to a park, we try to talk him into coming back to his family, and he refuses, Now, that was 30-some years ago. On the way back from that confrontation at his house, the friend who was with me said, Dave, lead us in a word of prayer. You know, he didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what else to do. And so I led him in a word of prayer, and in the process of starting that prayer, I broke down and started just crying like a baby. And I was crying so hard, I couldn't stop. And so Paul, who was with me, had to drive us back to the airport. And as we turned into the rental car return place, I finally got a hold of myself, stopped crying. I looked over at Paul and I said, Paul, when I get back home, I'm going to go back to graduate school and I'm going to figure out why pastors do this because I've only worked for two of them and both of them ran off with other women in the church. Okay. So sure enough, In September 1977, I was re-enrolled in prerequisites to get into grad school again. What I've learned since 1977 about adultery is what I'm going to share with you tonight. I can talk all night about this subject, okay? You're going to be sick and tired of hearing about it. But in the late 90s, actually in the early 90s, I joined a research team after I got out of grad school, and we surveyed 4,000 pastors. And this was a very interesting survey. We used Leadership Network. We used um, um, Christianity Today's survey that they'd use with their permissions, of course. And we put, merged them all together and surveyed pastors and pastors' conferences, et cetera. And basically what we found was this. About 90% of those pastors who, had, who admitted that they had been improperly involved sexually with, uh, while in ministry and married said things like this. They were shocked. They, were, they felt bushwhacked, blindsided. They didn't see this coming. They had no idea that this was in the works for them. They didn't do this intentionally. And in that process, that was a shock to us, the researchers, because especially for a guy like me, when I went to seminary, basically we were taught these guys ran all the red lights, they busted through all the hedges, they broke down all the barriers, they, they knew exactly what they were doing. That's not what these guys said. And so in the process of this research, we begin to realize and ask the question, and I'm going to ask you this question tonight. Is it possible... Oh, I forgot to put this in. Sorry, just a second. Is it possible that someone can be ignorantly and innocently prepared for adultery? Is it possible? Is it possible that you can right now be in the process of becoming prepared for adultery and not even recognize it, okay? Can you be so far along that you're blind to it, okay? We're going to talk about that tonight. We're also going to talk about the three sources. This is not rocket science in lots of ways. There are three very specific sources for first-time adulteries, just three. We're going to talk about those tonight. And most of you have bumped up against most of them. Okay, we're going to talk about why that happened, because that raises the second question. The power of a temptation always lies in its timing. Always, always. When the devil tempted Jesus, and he resisted those temptations, the, the Gospels tell us this great line. The devil left him for a more opportune time, okay? There is a better time. I'm not going to keep wasting my efforts trying to take you down because I know there's a more opportune time when you're going to fall, okay? Now, I don't want you walking out of here scared to death. And I don't want you walking out of here looking at your spouse saying, oh, come on, babes, tell me. you got to tell me now. I know the speaker tonight said that you're really being prepared. Lay it out, babe. i got to know, okay? I don't want you doing that kind of stuff at all. But when you walk out of here tonight, you will have so much to talk about. I hope your babysitter sleeps over, okay? (laughs) Okay, you ready? Now, one of the interesting things in this research is that 50% of these pastors who admitted that they had been involved in sexually indiscreet while in ministry and marriage, 50% of them said it was with a friend, somebody they knew very well, somebody they had a relationship with. And that was a shock to us, because we'd always heard or thought, or it was just something totally outside the church. But these people were talking about having an inappropriate relationship with a friend, somebody they developed this friendship with. So what are we talking about, actually? What is a close-call friendship, a friendship that seems to be loaded or charged with inappropriate emotion? What is that all about? Well, when I was in grad school, the second time around, uh, my first clinical supervisor ran a 30-bed alcohol rehab inpatient program, and I did relapse prevention training. Now, I thought to myself, I was a pastor at that time, and I thought, what am I doing doing this? This is crazy, this is absolutely crazy, teaching all these drunks how to stop drinking, you know? But I began to learn something in that process that made a lot of sense to me when I began to work with adultery. Because these guys would come into the clinic and we'd do interviews with them and we'd write on their chart, under the influence of a mood-altering substance. Now, we didn't know what the substance was all the time, but we knew they were under the influence. And so what I'm going to talk to you tonight about is a relationship, a friendship that begins to generate in you infatuation for this person that actually will take you down. Infatuation is a toxic substance. Now, every one of you that are married know exactly what infatuation is all about. Because at one time, you were infatuated with that person that you're married to, okay? Okay? You were infatuated, and the the goal of a good marriage is to be able to provoke that infatuation. But what often happens is it gets very dull and boring, and we feel like we're looking for something. We need something new and fresh in this. Well, infatuation is what you're looking for. And the one thing to remember, people who violate their marriage vows are drunk with infatuation. Until you really buy that concept, they're not you won't understand. They're not mentally ill. They haven't had an emotional breakdown. This is not a midlife crisis. They're just drunk on infatuation. You cannot resist infatuation. Trust me. Remember what it's like? You couldn't wait to get married. Now, since then, maybe you woke up some mornings and think, what in the heck was I thinking when I did that, Okay? okay? That's pretty common thought occasionally. My wife and I have been married 46 years. I thought that thought more than once, okay? We have four kids, adult kids, uh, three girls and f- six grandkids. I know what that's all about. But you were infatuated. You, you thought this was heaven sent, and it was. That's what happens in first-time adultery. It's not a planned seduction. These people don't b- build this friendship looking to go to bed with somebody. Nope, that, that's not the way it works. So let's take a look at this. And let's talk about where these come from. The first source of these close calls is the platonic friendship. Now, you know, I was in college during Woodstock, okay? So I understand all about what free love and all that kind of stuff's about. I grew up in that kind of world. And we work a lot with men and women all the time. When I went back to grad school, I was put together in a cohort of 20 males and females. We lived, slept, basically... Devoted four years of our lives to get through grad school together. So I know what it's like to work with somebody of the opposite sex all the time. It's very, it just happens all the time. you, you sing in the same worship group together, you, you serve together, you serve in a kitchen maybe, uh, you teach kids maybe, you have a passion with this ministry that you d- your spouse doesn't share with you. My wife is a great musician, she works on our worship team, she leads handbells, she does all this kind of stuff. Now me, me I'm the type of guy, when we clap to music in our church, I have to watch somebody to figure out how to do it, okay? <laughs> now I just, I just don't have it, okay? My wife was born to dance, okay? Seriously, seriously. She just got this rhythm. Uh, we tease her about it all the time. She just cannot hear a song without doing a little boogie, even walking down the sidewalk. I mean, it's just built inside of her. Now, this happens that when you begin to share heartfelt ministries and passions with somebody that's not your spouse, you're just in a very risky area. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you need to be very honest about the risk involved because it's a very risky situation as this friendship begins to grow there are two things that happen that take it from a friendship to an emotional affair if you don't understand anything else I say tonight you need to understand this what takes a friendship from a friendship to an emotional affair two things when the conversation becomes personal rather than professional And when the friendship begins to alter your mood. When your mood is altered, seeing this person, hearing their voicemail uh, or reading their voicemail, hearing a, a, a phone call from them, hearing their voice in a group setting. When you're with this person and you're looking forward to seeing and your mood changes, you're in an emotional affair. This is no longer a friendship. I got great female friends. But they don't change my mood. Okay? They don't make me excited to see them. I don't change my dress or clothing because I'm going to see that person. I don't start working out or losing weight because I'm going to see this person. Okay? They don't change my mood. And the conversation becomes increasingly more personal. Now, we're going to talk about this in just a second. But I want to, I want to say this right now. I'm going to give you a chance to turn and talk to your spouse. Hopefully, it's your spouse. And if you, uh, if you don't like talking to your spouse or you don't like the people you're sitting next to, maybe because you're single and your spouse couldn't come tonight, this is the time to move, okay? So just get up, go to the restroom, come back to a different place because you're going to have an opportunity to talk about some of these concepts tonight, okay? So we're talking about these platonic friendships where you share a mission or a passion or an interest or a hobby or a job or a task that your spouse doesn't care anything about. That's a platonic friendship. We all have them. They're all over the place. Okay. Secondly, a dangerous partner profile is the second source. What is a dangerous partner profile? A dangerous partner is a person that we'll talk about a little later here. When they cross your field of vision, you fall for them immediately. Just immediately. You don't take the time to build a friendship. You're not in any ministry together. You don't even know why, you're, why the chemistry is suddenly aroused. We're going to talk about that person. There is a person called a dangerous partner profile for every single person in this room. You are especially susceptible to a certain configuration of the eight different qualities we're going to look at tonight, okay? That'll be interesting, okay? That'll be interesting. <clears throat> okay, the third thing we're going to look at is old girlfriends and boyfriends, okay? On Facebook or classbook.classmates.com. okay? Now, here's how it works, Okay? I know, this is how it works. <clears throat> it's 2 a.m. Your baby's been up half the night, crying. You finally get this child comforted and asleep, and you're all wired and wide awake. And you think to yourself, I wonder what ever happened to Susie. Now, I have a confession to make. I always use the name Susie because Susie was my old high school girlfriend. <laughs> and my wife knows that, okay? That's why I use Susie, okay, okay. <laughs> So you say to yourself, "I wonder whatever happened to Susie." So you sit down and you start getting on Facebook and you start uh, doing searches and everything else. And you know, ten thousand searches later, you're still looking for Susie. But you finally find her. You finally find her, okay? And you begin to share back and forth. Oh, you're married. You got three kids. You got a job. Your husband does this. Oh, that's great. You know, you share friendship. Now we have a saying in my field, and I want you to hear this: If you continue to stay in touch with an old girlfriend, or boyfriend for 30 days you will become confused about the marriage you have to the person you're living with okay okay if you continue to, to stay in con- contact with them for 30 additional days you'll be trying to find ways to sleep with them zero to 60 now why is that true because the infatuation that you had for that girlfriend or that boyfriend is stored in your brain. It doesn't have to be created through a long-term friendship. And it doesn't have to have the characteristics or qualities of the dangerous partner. It's in your brain. And once it begins to get triggered, it will take you down. You'll get drunk on this. And you'll begin to find ways to contact them and get in touch with them, and you'll be looking for them. And the conversations will get longer. I just started working with a guy who got fired from his organization because he had 3,000 texts on his phone to an old girlfriend. Now, the point is, none of them were sexual, and none of them were erotic, but the infatuation was obvious in the connections. So we're going to look at three sources, how you build platonic friendships. It's easy to do. Second, we're going to dangerous partners. And the third, we're going to talk about old old girlfriends and boyfriends. When you trigger or stimulate that infatuation that's stored in your brain, you never forget what you were attracted to in high school and college. Never. That's come. Everything is retro. They, people love going back to those days. Now I want. You, I'm going to give you two minutes to turn and talk about those three sources of first-time adulteries. Go right now. Good. Go. Okay, excuse me, come back and just join me again. Now, I'm gonna go through 17, 18 characteristics of what we call close-call friendships. These are qualities, characteristics. They're not sequential. They don't happen in a row, for instance. And as we talk about these characteristics, you might find some of them are more fitting in your setting than others are. I don't want you to look at this, this list of characteristics as a web that somebody is trying to build to seduce you. I don't believe that's true at all. But I do want you to view this list of characteristics as a web of support that is being constructed to which you will turn when you face certain obstacles in your life. When I see couples, I do all kinds of um, affair recovery work, and when, you, when I see a couple, we look at their marital history, spread out on a chart, and we find out where did this affair start. And they usually think when it became sexual or something. I say, well, no, let's go back to where the infatuation occurred. So we, we kind of figure out what month that started. And then what we do is this. We go back two years. And in that two-year period, we look for the triggers that cause first-time adulteries. First-time adulteries are all about comfort, Distraction and care. They always are. Now, the person who has serial adulteries or multiple one night stands or seduces anybody and everybody they can possibly can, that's not what we're talking, we're talking about. First time adulteries that are counterintuitive and counterproductive to the character of the person. We call the psychology, we call them egodystonic. They don't fit with the stated values and beliefs. How does that happen? It is a response to stress. We'll show you that in just a second. So in that period is what we're looking for. Sex is the most comforting antidepressant known to males. Okay. It is. Men think sex fixes everything. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about that too. If we have some time, I'll share with you some great research that's been done in the U.S. here. But let's talk about this close call friendship. First of all, what's this look like? Well, you begin to save topics of conversation to talk with this person. You know, maybe your spouse doesn't care anything about that topic. You know, my wife, she would love to share music with me. I, I just don't care. She gives me these women, uh, female detective stories. They're more about romance than they are about detective stuff or mysteries. You know? I just don't care for some of that. But, so you begin to save topics... For, these, for this person because they're interesting. You save CDs because they, they like music and you like music. Or, this is, we could do this and we could do that. So you save stuff. It can happen at work even. Your, your wife or your spouse doesn't know really anything about what you do at work, but this person does. So you save topics to conversation. Just kind of cultivating. Not that we all do this, okay? So understand, this is not evil stuff I'm talking about. You might even share spousal difficulties with this person with the goal of improving your marriage. Saying, you're a man, you know, help me understand why men think. I think men, I just think men, I don't know what to think about men. Help me understand men, okay? Or my wife is crazy sometimes, I just don't understand that. Help me understand, what goes on in a woman's mind? So you share spousal difficulties. You're trying to improve your marriage. This person's a member of the opposite sex, they're going to be helpful to you. They really care about you. They want your marriage to be successful. This friend might even share relationship difficulties. Maybe they're single and you're married. So she comes at work and starts talking to you about her boyfriend and the the problems they're having. You're married. You know how it works. Help me understand. And so they share their relationship difficulties. Now you've moved from the professional more to the personal stuff. You might even anticipate seeing this friend more than you see your spouse. You know, you see your spouse at the two worst times of the days. In the morning when you're stinky and you haven't gotten clothes and dressed. And, you, and then at night, when you, if you've got kids, you've got homework and baths. And you're trying to fix food. And you're trying to get clothes ready for tomorrow morning. And you start the whole cycle over. This person is dressed, happy, smiles, <laughs> looks forward to seeing you. Okay? I mean, you can't beat it. Okay? Okay? So you might, it's very easy to begin to anticipate seeing this friend more than seeing your spouse. It's, when you see your spouse at night, it's second shift. You know, it's just hard, okay? (laughs) So you might even compare the spouse to your friend. You might even go away from this friendship time saying to yourself. You know, I just wish uh, Susie would be more like this or something like that, okay? You just begin to, ah, it'd be so nice if Tom would just talk to me like he talks to me or would smile at me or would look at me. That's my wife's big complaint. I don't look at her enough, okay? So (laughs) don't worry. We all have our issues, okay? (laughs) So I've been really trying to work on that, okay? It's easy to compare the spouse to the friend. You might even provide special treats for this friend. Now, you're not thinking about taking him to bed. You have no interest in that. But you're at the Starbucks, and you say, oh, you know, she likes those liquid dessert coffees, frappuccinos, stuff like that. She's really been working hard or whatever. I'll just grab her one of those and take it. Or maybe you buy just a little treat. Now, you don't tell your spouse about that, okay? You kind of begin to hide those kind of things. You're just being nice, though. You're just being a friend. There's no question about it. You might even become con- more concerned about this friend than you are your spouse. Maybe you're on the worship team. And you notice Susie. I'm going to keep using Susie, okay? You notice Susie is sitting next to you singing, and she's got kind of a raspy voice and, and all. And you can just tell she doesn't feel real good and sound real good and got a little drippy nose. And so you reach over, and you, you get a handkerchief out of the handkerchief box, and you hand it to her. You haven't handed your wife a Kleenex for 30 years, okay? Okay? You haven't done it. It's easy to begin to care more for the friend than you care for the wife. You, you begin to take each other for granted the longer you live together. It's easy to do, okay? You might even fantasize about marriage with this friend. You, you, you might just think, oh, her husband is such a lucky guy. And so you just fantasize about it. And you create it out of you make it better than it really probably is. But it's easy to fantasize about that. You also Well, okay, I got a stuck button here and just uh, let me go back here. This button. Oops. Hang on. Sorry about that. You just started clicking off all of them. But I'll be right back with you. Uh, Sorry. Okay. So you might even spend more alone time with this uh, friend than you spend with your spouse. You know, if you work with this person, it's very easy to spend more time with them alone than you have with your spouse. In fact, if you just minister with somebody, if you teach a Sunday school class, if you work with children or teenagers, or you work in a soup kitchen, or you sing on a worship team, or whatever the case is, those two or three hours where you're with that person might be more time than you spend with your spouse alone, doing something you both like. Remember, you and your friend are both doing something you really like to do. It's very difficult to get three hours with just your spouse the two of you doing something you really like both like to do it's easy to spend a long time your spouse might be, can't be able to isn't able to access all the conversation you know years ago when i first got into this field somebody called the house you went over to the phone picked up this big phone this great big thing you pull up an antenna and you walk off and everybody knows exactly what you're doing you know you're talking on the phone okay that's not true anymore you can get texts tweets you can get special email accounts. You can hide all your conversations. Your spouse doesn't know. I told you about it. the guy had 3,000 texts on his phone. It's very easy to build that kind of relationship through those kinds of experiences. Your spouse can't access all your conversations. You might even spend money without your spouse's awareness on this friendship. For instance, let's say you're a boss at work, and you've got this little single mom, and she's got a couple of kids, and she's working so hard, and you know she's having a hard time, so you give her $20 to buy gas or take her kids out to McDonald's. Great gesture, wonderful kindness, but you don't tell your spouse about it. it just, it's just a little risky to start sharing where you're giving money to people and how, they might, how your spouse might respond to that. You might even argue with your spouse over this relationship. This spouse might even say to you, you know, I can tell she's really got eyes for you. He's hitting on you. Can't you see that you need to be? So you argue over that kind of stuff. And it just goes back and forth. It happens with everybody. Trust me, if it hasn't happened to you yet, you're dead or in denial, okay? Because it will happen in this culture. It just does. You might even lie to spend time with this Uh, to spend more time with this person, you say, oh, I wouldn't do that. Okay, you're on the worship team. I'm not picking on worship team leaders, okay. But you're on the worship team, okay? And and the worship practice is from 7 to 8.30. But you tell your spouse, you know, we go 7 to 9. That's true. Most of them hang around to 9 because from 8.30 to 9, they all sing pop songs together, and they really like it. The actual practice is 7 to 8.30. You don't say that. You say it's 7 to 9. So now you're telling these little white lies. You, after you, you just begin to hide the interactions. And, and these interactions, as they get hidden, you might even say to this person, don't look at me in church tomorrow. As we pass each other an aisle, don't smile at me. My, my spouse thinks you have something for me. Don't let anybody know that we have anything going. Just ignore me. Okay? And so you hide. Now you're hiding stuff. We call, that's why we call these things breach of trust issues. You breach the trust. You might even accuse the spouse of jealousy. That's the big gun in Christian circles. You really just might say, you're just jealous. You're just, no, we're just, no, you're just, you're just jealous. We're friends, that's all. Quit, quit doing all this accusing, okay? <clears throat> you might even develop special rituals with this friend. You know, a ritual has nothing to do with the calendar. It has everything to do with an anticipated connection between the two of you. Maybe it's a 10 o'clock phone call on Monday. How's your weekend? Okay. Maybe you meet down the coffee break room for a, few, for a cup of coffee every day and just talk. Maybe you look forward to meeting a little before the time you're teaching time or whatever the case is, you develop these little times of connections and you're building this web of support. You're building this support system that when you go through hard times and your spouse says to you, I can't talk about this anymore. I don't want to discuss this. Life is bigger than this. I've got to move on." It causes you to turn to this friendship. It causes you to go back to somebody who really understands you, who knows you. You might even have sexual content in these conversations, not between the two of you, but just sexual content. We see this in our own adult children. Your friends, the sitcom Friends change forever, what young adults talk about. Change forever. I mean, nothing's off limits. My wife and I have talked about that several times in our lives. Uh, And you might even participate in what we call corporate dating. Corporate dating is when you travel with this friend to another city, you stay in the same hotel... You entertain guests at very delightful meals, meals you could never afford to buy with your spouse or family. You go to entertainment venues with clients that you could never take your family to. And then you come back, and you drink all the alcohol you want, and the company will pay for it. And then you come back to the same hotel. That has all the components of a date. And we do this day in and day out by the thousands in America. Corporate dating, we call it. Now, I want you to turn and talk. I'm going to give you three more minutes. About these 18 characteristics of emotional friendships, platonic friendships, close call friendships. Go right now. Come. 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 Um, Okay. Okay. Come back with me here. Okay. Now, I'm going to go into our next category, um, but just continue to remember Platonic friendships, they're wonderful. I'm not against male female friendships. I don't want anybody to walk out of here and say, You can't talk to women. You know what? We need to divide this congregation in this side. Women on this side, men on this side. Hide your eyes. You can't concentrate on Pastor Rob when you see a woman next to you. I mean, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff, okay? I'm talking just be very aware of building this network of friendship with which you could, one, become very personal, and you could allow it to change your mood, okay? Okay? That's the first dangerous type of stuff you need to be very careful of. Okay? Now, the second thing we're going to talk about is dangerous partner profile. I don't have a lot of time to cover this, but I'm going to cover the eight characteristics. I'm going to tell you illustrations about them because we all have a dangerous partner profile. Don't think of somebody tall, dark, and handsome or blonde or whatever the case is. Just think of these pieces that this person brings to your own neediness. That's the best way to describe this. Internal age. We all have an internal age. Everybody. The chronological age marches on, but we would like to be back here. We, we hear wives talk about, we have four, I have four kids. Uh, uh, three of them are under 10 and one's 35. You know, they just didn't grow up, okay? The internal age, we'd like to go back. I, I finished raising my in-law's son or, uh, or our daughter, whatever the case is. So this internal age always factors into the selection choice that people have in infidelity. It's important. So I ask you a question. When you go out to dinner tonight, ask your spouse, how old are you on the inside? Okay? It's interesting to figure it out. We all go back and forth in this depending on who we are with. When we get around our parents, many times we act like we never grew up. They don't think we did. Okay, that's why we act that way. But many times we're very mature and act our age. Okay, but part of just like the two medical doctors who came to see me, and he was in a situation as an only child, the male child, in a, in a culture where he it was really incumbent upon him to produce and, and really be successful. So his parents bought, hired tutors for him and he went to school and he got great grades and he went to high school. He was taking all kinds of classes and he was finally accepted into a five-year M.D. B.A. program in a prestigious medical college. And he graduated from that and then he went into a prestigious residency and, and, and did that and everything. And when I saw him, he was 36 years old and he said to me, his wife brought him in, he said to me, when I went through my life, I never had a chance to date I missed my entire adolescence and I'm going to date now there's a missing developmental piece in his life now he might have been able to do that just fine in some other cultures but you can't do that in America okay you can't adolescence is too important internal age is huge Developmental lag, this is another portion of it. Some people get traumatized by alcoholic parents, abusive parents, sexual molestation, divorce from parents, where they really don't develop well and normally after that. They get stuck kind of like that. It's, it's trauma in their lives. They've never worked through it. And you, when you talk with them, you can tell. They just never quite grew up. They just never quite grew up. Personality style. We all have a personality style we really like. Or we really admire. We might choose somebody to marry very different than that personality style because they're safe or because we've had experience with that kind of personality style. But there's often a personality style we'd really like to be living with that sounds like it'd be more fun and a better fit for us. And this person comes along with that personality style that you like, and it would be amazing. Kind of like the pastor who called me up. I've never met this man. He called me up and he said, I want to tell you a story. He said, My wife and I came out of a very bad past, and we met in Bible college and went off to seminary together, and and you know the Lord had really turned our lives around and we were just thrilled with that. And um, we came to this little town and Uh, we've had four children living at home, and my wife was kind of caught up in the house trying to raise the kids and all, and so I was encouraging her to be in ministry, and we, we live in a town that has a federal penitentiary in it, and so one of the ministries our church has developed is writing prisoners, and so my wife said, well, I can do that, so she started writing letters to this prisoner, okay? Lo and behold, the husband didn't know anything was going on, but one day he came home from work, and there was a note and this prisoner she'd been writing to got out of prison, bought a Harley, came by the house, picked her up, and she abandoned everybody. He's never seen her since. Okay? He's never seen her since. Now, that personality style, that chaotic, uh, dangerous, risky personality was what she had grown up with and what she admired. But she had married this good old steady Eddie pastor and got bored with him. Okay? Hobbies and interests. We all have hobbies and interests we really like, and when you have a, share a hobby or interest, you kind of connect automatically. It's kind of like the 65-year-old guy who finally retired, and he was very interested in exploring his genealogy. He didn't have time when he was working, and so he went to one of the university libraries there in, in Southern California and started working. He was just thrilled with him. And one night he, or day he was there, he met this little 19-year-old co-ed, and she was adopted, and she didn't know who her biological parents were. And so she was trying to find them. And so he shared with her some tidbits. Over a year, he saw her five or six times, always asking, how you doing? You got this kind of figured out? What kind of progress? Oh, yeah, yeah, I tried this. And they just working back and forth. Well, that went on for three years. And they started sleeping together. She was old enough to be his grandpa. Or, you know, I mean, he was old enough to be her grandpa. Okay? But they shared a hobby and an interest, and it just brought them together. An attachment pattern. Now, I have friends who live in Minnesota. I don't know if it's really true or not, but he talks to, the, talks to me about them being the frozen chosen. You ever hug a Minnesota and they're just as stiff as a board, okay? They just don't fit well in your arms like that, okay? <laughs> so sometimes... I, now, I, I, that's not my statement, okay? I'm just copying what one of my friends said. Okay, so anyway. But in attachment patterns, many times, some of us like close, warm, loving snuggly, touchy families. Other people don't. But if you marry someone who doesn't like the kind of attachment you're used to, sometimes it can create a vacuum, a, a, a void in your life that makes you vulnerable to somebody who expresses love and attachment in a way that you've yearned for or have felt familiar with in the past. The family of origin deficit. Maybe you're like the girl who never really had a dad in her family and she was uh, working for this company and this guy that she was working for just was a great mentor and bringing her along corporately and she was just thrilled with it and she was learning so much from him and his, his words just meant so much to her as a male, an older male who admired her talent and ability and what she brought to the company, etc. And, and unfortunately, because of this admiration, they got involved with each other. Family of origin deficits, single family of origin deficits, other kinds of family of origin deficits make you vulnerable, somebody who can meet that need. Marital void. I told you about my wife and our music. I mean, my wife would love for me to go to dances. In fact, we used to go on a lot of cruises. We, we still like going on cruises. but um, So we decided, because uh, we could hide it, that we would take dancing lessons on the cruise ships, okay? Okay. <laughs> Now, you get, now, i already told you about me, okay? So, it got to the place, though, that I began to dread going on a cruise. I would actually get sick to my stomach on a cruise, knowing I'm going to have to take dancing lessons. It ruined every single day on the cruise. <laughs> I finally told my wife, after six or seven cruises with dancing lessons, that this was not going to work in our marriage. And after I'm gone, babes, you go dance the night away, okay? But I'm not going to be your partner, okay? I just can't do this, okay? I just can't. I don't know. I just didn't grow up with it. I don't know how to do it. Now, every marriage has voids. Pursue patterns. Pursue patterns. This is like a Sam, an old man friend of mine that I led to Christ and disciple for years. And, uh, but I had met Sam because one day this woman I'd never met called me up and said to me, um, my husband's living with a prostitute in Central America, and I want you to call him up and tell him to get home and work on his marriage, okay? Okay? Give me the number. I'm game for anything one time anyway. <clears throat> so she gave me the number. I called him, and he, he answered the phone. I said, Sam, you got to get home and work on your marriage. Okay. He flies home, okay? Shot the heck out of me. Flies home, calls me up, said, Dave, I'm here. Let's work on the marriage. So I was sitting there with Sam one day, and I said to him, Sam, why did you do this? Just tell me why you think you did this. He said, well, this is a man who can neither read nor write in America. His mother was a prostitute, and he used to take care of his two-year-old baby sister while his mother, at the foot of the bed, while his mother turned tricks. Okay? Now, he said, "Um, but don't feel sorry for Sam. He's made Millions of dollars reading blueprints. Okay, so anyway, I asked him, "Why do you do this?" He said, "Well, one day I sat on my back porch and I thought, I gave this guy fifty thousand dollars. I gave this. I paid for this kid's education. I bought this family a house. This family a car. Paid for these medical expenses." He said, "I made a list of almost fifty people in my family or close associates that I had taken care of in one way or another." And I said to myself, "Sam." You need to go find somebody to take care of you." And he did. He just went the wrong place, in the wrong direction. Now, that are those are the bits and pieces that can contribute to a dangerous partner profile that once you go through what we're going to talk about in just a second, the triggers, it will make you especially vulnerable. And you won't even know why for the longest time. Until you begin to talk with them more about it. But you will sense it intuitively, this immediate attraction. Now, I want you to talk about that. I'm going to give you two minutes, and then I'm going to finish in three. Go. Okay? (laughs) Pursuit pattern. Dangerous partner profile. OK, I hate to cut this short, but we've we got to finish this, OK? Now, think of the net, the net of support from the platonic friendship, the dangerous partner friendship or, or profile, and the person, the old girlfriend or boyfriend. Now, what takes somebody over the edge? What causes them to do something that's so contrary to their stated values and beliefs? I talked to you earlier about stress, OK? So let's look at this as sustained stress. Two years. Two years of sustained stress will make you extremely vulnerable. The greatest time of infidelity, first-time infidelity in America, it happens in every single marriage which has children. It's the nine months of pregnancy and the first year after delivery. 50% of all first-time adulteries in America occur in that two-year period, okay? Now, there's all kinds of good reasons for that, okay? And one of them, hopefully, maybe if I have time, I'll talk about it. There's some biological reasons. But let's talk about the stress. Unusual stress that sets you up or makes you vulnerable. Legal issues. We don't have any experience with legal issues. It wears us out. It goes on forever. Career-threatening things. Companies close down. Skill sets don't work anymore. Financial upside-down in your home. Bankruptcies. Those kinds of things are terrible stressors. Health issues. Change in health status. Diagnosis. Lifetime issues. Uh, with health, new things, diabetes, chronic illnesses, etc., relationships, grandma develops Alzheimer's, you got a, a rebellious teenager on your hand. Those kinds of things create huge amounts of stress. And somewhere in that process, you will begin to talk to this person who seems that you have an immediate connection with the dangerous partner profile or the platonic friendship that you, or the old classmate that knows you very well and you talk for hours. So that is the combination that triggers it. It happens in all of our lives. Now, I want to take 30 seconds, and I want to tell you about what I just said about pregnancy. Okay? Very important. We didn't know this to six or seven years ago. There is a, a chemical called oxytocin. It's a hormone. Everybody has it. We can set most men down here in a chair, put a dog beside them, tell them to pat the dog for five minutes, Draw blood from the dog, draw blood from the guy, and they both have elevated oxytocin levels. The street drug ecstasy is in this same family. Okay? Now, oxytocin makes and helps that mother bond with that baby. Women's oxytocin levels are never higher than when they are nursing a baby. Male oxytocin levels, listen closely, are never higher than after they've had sexual intercourse with someone who loves them. They do not spike that high with masturbation or with sex with prostitutes. So God used and built in the human body the need to bond to your spouse through oxytocin. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only way to cultivate it. But it is something you need to be aware of. You need to take very good care of each other in a marriage. You need to build that sense of bonding, that sense of belonging to each other. And I would go through some other research if we'd had some more time tonight. But the point is, you can do that. You can create the infatuation and you can build the oxytocin. And God has answers in the human body to facilitate both of those things in your marriage. I want to pray for you that God will help you create moments of infatuation between the two of you and that he will make you extremely aware of how you can care for each other and create the bonding hormone between the two, the caring, the stroking, the nurturing that we all need in our marriages. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for these marriages in this room that your spirit would bless, encourage, help them to apply what they've seen and heard tonight. I pray that you would prosper them, that you would give them little encouragements along the way. You would renew That joy, that initial joy that they had with each other, even tonight, may they feel warmly attracted to each other in very special ways. Encourage them to be courageous and to share with each other in ways that will knit the bonding between the two of them. We ask now in Jesus' name, amen.